Heavenly Father, as we come now to your words, help me to be preaching it faithfully in the power of your Holy Spirit. May you grant us the grace to sit humbly under your word, to respond to it rightly, that we may serve you joyfully as you deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, there's a big difference between being a volunteer and being an employee. Now, the employee, they have to be at work. If they don't turn up, they're probably going to be fired. They have a responsibility to fulfill. They have a boss that they need to answer to. They have standards that they need to meet. They don't expect thanks or praise from their boss. They're just doing the job that they were paid to do. But it's different for a volunteer, isn't it? The volunteer knows that they don't have to turn up if they don't want to. They, they could have stayed at home. They could have relaxed and, and, and slept in. And so if you're a volunteer, then you do kind of expect some appreciation, don't you? You expect uh, to be valued for the sacrifices that you have made. Now, I wonder as you think about your own relationship with God, which of those do you consider it to be like? Are you more like uh, a servant or an employee doing your job? Or are you more like the volunteer? Are you simply doing your duty? Or does God kind of owe you some appreciation for what you have done for him? Do you feel like you've done God a few favours? Uh, maybe by coming to church this morning, maybe give some money later, and he's indebted to you in return. You know, you've been to church, you've served in the, in the ministry, you've given your money, now he owes you some blessing, some thanks, some good health maybe, some promotions, some things to help you along. I think it's easy to identify our entitlement when things go bad in life. When you start thinking to yourself like this, God, how could you let this thing happen to me after all those things that I've done for you? Don't you remember all those Bible studies that I led? All those Sunday school lessons? You know how it works, God. I put my faith in you. I serve you and you bless me in return. How could you let me down now when I need you the most? See, that's how you think when you're a volunteer not a servant. So how do you think about your relationship with God? Well, today we're going to learn a look at this passage from Luke chapter 17. We're going to think about the nature of Christian discipleship. We've got these three little snapshots into the attitude that disciples of Jesus are to have to one another and to him. Now, at first sight, I wonder if you thought those three stories were a little bit random you know, what's the relationship between causing someone to stumble, between forgiveness and faith, and being an unworthy uh, servant? But whenever we come to Luke's Gospel, we can rest assured this is no random collection of stories. Uh, Luke tells us how and, wrote, uh, how and why he wrote his Gospel in Luke chapter 1. He tells us in chapter 1 that he wrote an orderly account. Next, uh, next slide. He wrote an orderly account uh, everything is, is carefully arranged in his gospel. And he wrote with a singular purpose there in verse 4, to give us certainty concerning the things that we have been told. Uh, so this is not random, it's related. And in this section of Luke's gospel, Jesus is on a journey to Jerusalem. The journey begins in chapter 9, verse 51. And again and again, he's been predicting where the journey ends. Uh, that is, he knows he's going to be betrayed, he's going to suffer, he's going to be killed on the cross, 
and three days later, rise again. But along the way, as he goes on this journey, he's teaching his disciples how to enter the kingdom of God and how to be his disciples, his followers. Now, in the previous chapters, we've seen quite a lot of conflict between the scribes uh, and the Pharisees and Jesus. See, the Pharisees, the scribes, they've had no concern for people entering the kingdom of God. In fact, they've been grumbling and complaining when people start following Jesus. Uh, In chapter 15, they're grumbling that Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. That prompts Jesus to tell that famous parable of the prodigal son in chapter 15. The Pharisees, a bit like the oldest son, working hard to try and please God, expecting some kind of return from God for all their effort they've put in, but really having no relationship with him at all. On the contrary, God, as the loving father who welcomes back repentant sinners. In chapter 16, the topic was wealth. Jesus tells his disciples to use their wealth to bring people into the kingdom. But the Pharisees, we're told, they love wealth. And they ridicule Jesus to justify themselves. And so as we come to chapter 17, Jesus now turns away from the crowds to address his disciples themselves. What kind of attitude, what kind of lifestyle are they to have as disciples of Jesus? What kind of kingdom attitudes are they to embrace? Well, let's come to the first point. Disciples of Jesus take care not to stumble others. Disciples of Jesus, take care not to stumble others. Verse 1, he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Jesus wants us to understand the serious impact that our actions can have on other people. Now notice Jesus is not surprised that people are going to fall into sin. Jesus says temptations are sure to come. Christians will stumble. They may even fall. Perhaps we know friends who were once walking with the Lord and now have drifted or turned away from him. I've got several friends who've been like that. People who shared the gospel with me, people who brought me along to church and encouraged me in following Jesus, people I serve with in ministry who are no longer walking with the Lord. But for some people, they turn away from the Lord because of hypocrisy in church. Uh, for some people, they turn away because they're tempted by sex or money or something like that, career success. We need to understand temptations like these are sure to come. We're not immune to these temptations either. We will face them. Stumbling blocks to discipleship are inevitable. But Jesus' point here is, don't yourself be the reason that someone stops following Jesus. Don't yourself be that stumbling block. Because the consequences are very serious indeed. It says in verse 2, It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, by little ones here, he's not so much talking about the children out in the Sunday school here. Little ones is Jesus' way of talking about disciples. Uh, If you read on in chapter 18, uh, you'll see Jesus saying the disciples of Jesus who would enter the kingdom of God, they must become like children. Totally dependent upon Jesus and not their own works. 
That's what we are to be like, little children, trusting him in him. But it's very serious then to stop a disciple, a little one, to make them stumble and, and sin. It's a very graphic image Jesus gives here, isn't it? I mean, think about the worst possible way that you could die. If you don't think about it for too long, being drowned, burnt alive, well, whatever it comes to your mind, it's really quite small in comparison to the judgment that you will get for causing someone to stop following Jesus. See, the idea here is, I mentioned you've got this great big millstone. They were the ones that you would use to, 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 to crush uh, crush grain and so on. To jump into one of those with in, into the sea with one of those tied around your neck, well, you're just going straight to the bottom. It's certain death. But the, that, even that, as bad as that may be, well, that's nothing compared to the judgment that is to come. The judgment that Jesus has in mind here is actually hell itself. It's a place he's just described at the end of chapter 16, a place of anguish, a place of torment, a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place that is of eternal punishment, a place that you cannot leave even if you wanted to because there is an impassable chasm that lies between, separating you from God forever. I wonder how you feel about, I wonder how often you think about how your actions affect those around you. How often do you stop and think how your lifestyle affects fellow Christians around you? How does your church attendance affect the lives of other Christians? Or your lack of godliness, how does that affect people around you? We're very used to being quite self-focused, I think, thinking of what is good for ourselves, what's comfortable or convenient for ourselves. But are there things that you've done or right now that you are doing that might be causing other Christians to stumble in their faith? Jesus says to us here this morning, watch out, take care, beware of how your actions affect other people because Christians are Jesus' little ones, they are precious to him, and to stumble even one is so horrific, it deserves the punishment of hell. Now, it's quite likely at this point that Jesus has in mind the Pharisees. We've seen that's the context of the gospel. The Pharisees were self-righteous and judgmental. They were people who were greedy and loved money. They were people that were obsessed with their own status and importance and looked down on others. And they were kind of trying to keep all those sinners that were coming to Jesus out of the kingdom of God. They refused to accept them. They refused to forgive them. They refused to reach out of them. They would rather stay in their own self-righteous bubble than reach out with the love and grace of God. I take it they are who Jesus in particular has in mind here. And he says, don't be like them. Don't be like those self-righteous, greedy Pharisees, more concerned on their own comfort than themselves. I mean, would we shut out someone out of this church because they don't quite fit the normal social economic bubble of the rest of us? Well, I take it that's why Jesus moves on to the particular application he does in verses 3 and 4. He says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. 
If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Jesus says we must be ready to rebuke and to forgive. That's not what the Pharisees were doing. They had no interest in forgiving sinners. We look back to chapter 15, verse 2, we read this. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. It's not easy to rebuke someone, is it? It's not easy to confront someone with their life and say, actually, this part of your life you're not following as Jesus wants. It's much easier to ignore it, isn't it? Especially if you live in an Asian context like this where we tend to value face uh, and try not to make someone else look bad. But we may well cause someone to stumble if we're not willing to confront them for their sin. Because if we're not pleading for them to, to turn from their evil ways that are eventually going to lead them to destruction, then we might be allowing them to just keep on walking in those ways. If we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, we must call them back. We must, we must rebuke them, call them to repent if they go astray. We must not do that in self-righteous judgmentalism. We must do it in deep love. But if we would not cause our brothers to stumble, then rebuking is essential. And when they repent, we need to be ready to forgive. And to forgive. And to forgive. And to forgive. It's staggering verse 4, isn't it? If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. I mean, you'll be thinking to yourself, are you really repentant? I mean, you just said it like five seconds ago that you were sorry and then you repeated the same thing. That's what our children do sometimes, isn't it? But an adult, an adult who's grown up in church, repent, I'm sorry. Oh, I just did it again. Sorry about that. Oh, I did it again. Sorry. You're going to think that their repentance is not genuine maybe, isn't it? But he says, forgive, 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 forgive. It's quite extreme forgiveness, isn't it? Unlimited forgiveness, really. I think that's the point. I wonder this morning, is there someone that you need to forgive? Is there someone who's wronged you and you are withholding forgiveness from them? Forgiveness is hard, isn't it? Forgiveness is costly. If you're like me, it's much easier to hold on to the hurt than to say, I forgive you. But hold on to it. You can stumble someone, can't you? Well, in this way, we're to be like God. Remember what the father does in that parable of the prodigal son. His son who has rejected him said, I wish you were dead. His son who squandered half of his wealth. What does he do? He embraces him with that extravagant Love. He forgives him. He welcomes him back. He puts on this marvelous feast to celebrate that his lost son has been found. And all that, just a, a small picture of the great rejoicing that happens in heaven when one sinner repents and comes back to Jesus. God is the God who forgives, who delights to forgive again and again and again. 
even serious sins. But remember also in that story, that was not the oldest son, was it? How did the oldest son react when his father forgave the younger son? He was angry, wasn't he? He was angry that his father took him back. Just like those Pharisees who were grumbling and complaining when Jesus welcomed sinners in. They were pausing a stumbling block to Jesus' little ones. And so, friends, if in our self-righteousness we refuse to welcome repentant sinners into the church, we're stumbling them. And Jesus says it would be better we had a millstone tied to our neck than to face God's judgment in hell. Disciples of Jesus take care not to stumble others. Secondly, disciples of Jesus know that the presence of faith is more important than the quantity of faith. Jesus, disciples of Jesus know that the presence of faith is more important than the quantity of faith. In verse 5, Jesus talked about this total forgiveness again and again and again and again. It prompts the disciples uh, to have this reaction. They know they can't reach this standard that Jesus uh, is setting here. They know that they can't forgive and forgive and forgive in this unlimited kind of way, at least not how they are now. They're worried they're going to be judged like the Pharisees are. And so verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. They're thinking, if I just had a stronger faith, if I just had faith like Jesus, then I could forgive like that. Sometimes Christians say that, isn't it? Oh, I wish I was a good Christian like you. I, I wish I had your faith. And that kind of language, it shows that we've really misunderstood both the nature of faith and the power of faith. Firstly, we see they've, they've misunderstood the nature of faith because as Jesus goes on to explain, it's not the amount of faith that's important. It's the presence of faith and who your faith is in. Uh, just an example, if you uh, were taking a uh, grab car here to church this morning, then you would need to demonstrate some faith by getting into the car. Now, it doesn't really matter so much how much faith you have in the grab driver at that point. It doesn't matter if you're kind of thinking, oh, this guy's a bit shady, I, he might abduct me. Or you think, oh, this, this guy is he's so good, he could maybe even be a pastor, maybe an interim pastor of the church. It doesn't really matter how much you, how well you think of the grab driver, right? You, what's going to get you to church is whether or not you get in the car or not. It's the presence of faith that matters, not the quantity of faith in the end. And it matters, is that person actually reliable or not? You can have all the faith in the world in that person to get you in the grab car to church, but if they are in fact a terrorist, then uh, you have misplaced your faith. You're not getting to church. So verse 6, the Lord said, Jesus said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And so when it comes to not stumbling others, when it comes to showing real forgiveness again and again and again, the issue here is not a lack of faith or how much faith you have, but whether or not your faith is real, whether or not your faith is present. The mustard seed was the smallest of all the plants, but it would grow into a great tree. Jesus said a parable like that. 
The point is, the smallest amount of faith can do remarkable things. It's not the amount of faith that's important, it's the presence of faith. Do you have a real trust in God? Such a faith is very powerful indeed. Jesus illustrates that with this image of a mulberry tree, which again was a very tall tree, with great roots being thrown into a sea. The mulberry tree was known for its deep root system. It was so deep, a mulberry tree would put its roots into the ground that it could easily last for 600 years or more. To uproot a mulberry tree is quite a miracle in itself. But Jesus' point here is, is not that if you have enough faith, then uh, all these miraculous things are going to start happening in your life. Uh, that's going to be taught in some, uh, some church circles, particularly by prosperity te teachers. They say, look, just have enough faith. Jesus will heal you. He'll make you prosper. Your cancer will be gone. Your business will succeed. I've seen seminars like that in Penang advertised on Facebook. Uh, they come like, I'll heal you of your cancer thing. Just come to this seminar, you'll walk out with no more cancer. That kind of dodgy theology turns God into some kind of divine vending machine. If you just put in enough faith coins, then you will get the candy that you want. That's not what Jesus means here. He's not saying, look, if you have faith, then you can do anything. Anything you want, it will be yours. No, we are to look for faith's powerful effects in more impressive ways than just getting rich or something. As I trust in Jesus, my faith will help me not to cheat on my exams. As I trust God enough that I can comfort other people when they've just lost a loved one. I, I can trust God in suffering because I know that God will work all things for my good. I can trust God with my relationship status because I'm content with my relationship with God alone. I can trust God by still attending church, even though finances are tough or things are busy at work. I can trust God enough when things are going sour in my relationship or with my kids. If I have faith, real, true faith, then we will see all these kinds of amazing things happen. And ultimately, we will see faith at work when we're ready to forgive again. And again, and again. It's not the amount of faith that's important. It's the presence of faith and who your faith is in. No matter how weak or small we think our faith is, we can be assured the most impossible thing of all is possible. We can enter the kingdom of God. If you're like a little child trusting in Jesus, he will get you there. Disciples of Jesus take care not to stumble others. Disciples of Jesus know the presence of faith is more important than the quantity of faith. Final points. Disciples of Jesus owe all to God. He doesn't owe them. Disciples of Jesus owe all to God. He doesn't owe them. See, it's possible, I guess, as we see faith producing all these various fruits in our life, that we start to think that we have some kind of claim on God. That because we've, we've trusted him and, and served him in all these various ways, that now he owes us. And it's exactly that kind of entitlement that you could see present in the Pharisees that Jesus now addresses in verses 7 to 10. He tells us a parable. 
Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? So in this parable, the disciple of Jesus is compared to a servant. Perhaps we're to imagine here the domestic helper or the maid that sometimes comes and cleans our house and helps with the housework. Would you imagine that you have a maid living at home with you? It's the end of the day. The maid's been working hard, uh, doing the dishes, ironing the clothes, mopping the floor. It's dinner time. What's going to happen next? Are you going to turn to the maid and say, oh, Please sit down. You must be exhausted. You've been doing all this housework all day. You know, you must be so tired. Look, I've cooked dinner for you. You just sit down, relax, watch some TV. You deserve a break. Well, if uh, if that's the kind of master you were, every maid would be wanting to knock on your door, isn't it? That's probably not what would happen, especially if you were a slave in the first century. We all understand The master is there, and the servant is there to serve the master. The master is not there to serve the servant. So verse 8, will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink. And of course the disciples and we ourselves, we should be nodding on in agreement here. It's just obvious, isn't it? Of course that's what would happen in this situation. Servants serve their master, masters don't serve their slaves. But Luke has already made it perfectly clear here that Jesus is the master and we are the slaves, we are the servants. Look back at verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, the master, increase our faith. In other words, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the boss, Jesus is the king, the master. We, his disciples, are the servants. It doesn't matter that they are the 12 apostles. Perhaps they thought that they were rather important in the kingdom of God. No. Jesus is the master. We are the servants. We are the slaves of Jesus. Of course, to say that we are the slaves of Jesus, we're not saying that Jesus is some kind of bad master. I mean, we're used to having bad bosses at work that exploit their employees. We're used to reading in the newspaper of of people who abuse their maids and so on. That is awful when that kind of thing happens. That's not what Jesus has in mind here. Jesus is a good master. Jesus is full of of self-sacrificial love and, and generosity. Jesus is the master who has done the unthinkable, who gets down from the table on the night before he's betrayed and and starts washing his disciples' feet like he is a slave, just a simple foretaste of what he's going to do on the cross, in serving us in the greatest possible of ways as he dies on the cross to wash us clean from all of our sins. Jesus is that unthinkable master who would serve his servants. He's good, he's loving, he's gracious. But the point is this. He's still the master. He's still the boss. He's still in charge. And our job is to serve him, not him to serve us. So you can't pick and choose when you want to obey Jesus and when you don't. He is always the Lord. We are always 
the servants. The right response is to serve him. And so notice how Jesus ends the parable in verses 9 and 10. Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Again, Jesus reminds us, the master is not indebted to the servant. I mean, it's nice when your boss says to you, look, you, you, you did a good job. I thank you so much for your, your effort and your sacrifice. But your boss doesn't owe you that. When you do your job, you're just doing your job. He just has to pay you. That's it. Uh, every now and then I do take grab car here or there. I always make it a point of thanking the driver at the end. You know, I, I really appreciate that you took the time to, to drop me home safely. Thank you so much. And the response is nearly always the same. Oh, there's no need to thank me. You know, I'm just doing my job. You paid for me to, 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 to take you home. See, the boss doesn't say, thank you so much for turning up to work today. That's so kind of you. Thanks so much for, for turning on your computer and doing work on the project you were assigned instead of going on social media. Let me take you out for lunch to show you just how appreciative I am for your work. Now, that, that's ridiculous, isn't it? That is not how it works. Brothers and sisters, Jesus does not owe you anything. You owe Jesus everything. Let me say it again. Jesus does not owe you anything. You owe Jesus everything. So when you trust him in a difficult situation, when you come along to church, when you give, give money to support the ministry, when you do various good works, you're not accumulating credit for yourselves that you can later claim back from him for a prosperous and comfortable life as a Christian. It doesn't work like that. We need to remember who Jesus is. Jesus is our creator who has given you your life and breath and everything you have. Colossians 1.16 says, All things were made through him and for him. And Jesus is our Redeemer too. Colossians goes on to say, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In other words, on the cross, Jesus died in our place. And he died for us when we were sinners. He died for us when we didn't deserve it. Through his death, he took our punishment on the cross to reconcile us, to bring us back into right relationship with God. And that's why in the middle of those verses, Colossians 1 says that in everything, he might be preeminent. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is boss. Our lives belong to him twice. He created us. We belong to him. He saved us. He brought us back for himself. And so in everything, we are to serve him. Jesus is Lord. Romans 12 puts it a slightly different way. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's a reminder, in view of all the mercy we've received from God, all the, the forgiveness that we've received through the cross, 
we are to offer our whole lives to God in worship. 24-7, 360 degrees, all of life, all of the time. Our lives belong to Jesus. And when we do that, we're not accumulating merits to claim later. There's not some kind of you know, a reward scheme, like when you pump your petrol, you get some reward points, you can claim it back later. No. What he, we're just giving him what he deserves as our saviour and Lord. Now, I think this was precisely the wrong attitude that the Pharisees and the scribes had. They did think that through their works, they could somehow impress God and earn their own way to heaven. And that's why instead of offering sinners forgiveness... They judged them. They were operating on the basis of works, not faith. Again, remember the parable of the prodigal son. The two sons, the younger son rejects his father. He asks for the inheritance. He squanders it. He repents and returns to the father. He's forgiven. But standing outside is the older son. And remember what the older son says. Let's look at Luke 15, 29. He says, look, these many years I have served you. And I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Do you hear the attitude of entitlement in his voice? Father, look what I've done for you. Look at all the ways I've served you, all the sacrifices I've done. You owe me, Dad. You owe me big time. And so he rejects his son, his brother, who's come back in repentance. And he rejects his father, who offered the forgiveness. Now, of course, this is not just a danger for the Pharisees, is it? It's very easy to slip into this attitude for ourselves. You know, I, I've, I've been laboring for this church I left my home country to come here to serve Jesus. God, don't you know how many people I've shared the gospel with? All those sacrifices that me and my family have made for you? Shouldn't you bless me? Shouldn't you give me a happy marriage? Shouldn't you give me good health? Shouldn't my children get good marks in school? Shouldn't you heal that relative? I've worked for you. You owe me, God. And we've got it all wrong. God does not owe us anything. We owe him. We're the sinners that need forgiveness. Jesus is the risen king. All authority in heaven and earth given to him. We serve him. He doesn't serve us. Now, of course, we're not just servants, are we? And that's the point of these verses. We're also his little children. We're loved by him. We are blessed beyond all comparison. It's our duty to serve him as our master. But how much more should we joyfully love and serve him as our father, one who's adopted us into his own family? If you find yourself gradually slipping into this way of of thinking, this way of entitled thinking, can I urge you this morning, repent. Ask for God's forgiveness. He is a loving master. 
he will surely forgive you. Let's conclude. We've seen this morning there's it's actually nothing more important than entering God's kingdom, of joyfully repenting of our sins and coming under Jesus' loving rule. As we do that, we are forgiven, we enjoy the hope of eternal life, and we avoid the disastrous alternative of God's judgment in hell. But we must be clear, we don't earn our own way into the kingdom of God. We can't merit our way into heaven by being moral and religious or being more moral and religious than other people. That's the mistake of Pharisees. That's the mistake of other religions. Earn your way to heaven by your own good works. No, it's not how it works. God owes us nothing. We owe him everything. The only way to enter his kingdom is like a little child, trusting wholly in Jesus to rescue us. So I want to say this to you this morning, if you've not yet done that, if you've not yet trusted in Jesus as your Saviour and King, then please turn to him this morning. Please give up that futile way of trying to earn God's favour by your own good works. In humble dependence, recognise your desperate need for his forgiveness and turn to him. He will welcome you. And if you've done that already, and many of us will have, let that grace transform you. As you lay aside any kind of entitlement or self-righteousness, allow that grace to change you so that you do show grace to other people. You do forgive them again and again. People mess up a lot in churches, don't they? Can you forgive them? Can you serve him with your whole life? Not expecting anything in return, but just because you're so thankful for all that he's done for you. There's a big difference between, between being a volunteer and being an employee. We see today, Jesus is the master. We are the servants. He owes us nothing. We owe him everything. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do want to praise you for the amazing grace that you've showered on us through the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you sent him to die for us when we were your enemies, when we were unworthy in every way. We thank you, Lord, for the total and free forgiveness that you offer us as we turn back to him. And so, Lord, please protect us from any attitude of entitlement or, or thinking that we can merit anything from you. Help us, Lord, not to think that you owe us anything, because you've already been so generous to us. You are so worthy of all our obedience and grace. And so, Lord, help us to be your faithful servants, to show your grace to others as you have forgiven us. We pray this in Jesus' name.